Our Heavenly Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. God, you are better than we deserve. You are so good to us, kind to us. And you have, ex- you have displayed and shown your love to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Would you be patient with us now? For every single heart here, would you come our hearts, you'd give us ears to hear, open our minds, and our hearts to receive truth. That God, with all of the truth that we hear, whether it's conviction and exhortation or admonition, rebuke the things that are stirring in our heart when we hear your word, that the spirit would take control and you would lead us to life. Not hopelessness, but life. There's always hope in you. And you'd encourage every heart here today as we look at your word. We pray this all in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Summit kids, you are dismissed. So great to see them. Give them a hand as they leave. Let these guys know you love them. The future of our church, leaving out these doors right now. Thank you, brother. See you, kids. John chapter 15. I'm going to jump right into it. John chapter 15, and you will see we probably, you're probably wondering, hey, we, ha- we didn't have uh, Lord's Supper. We didn't have communion together. We're coming to that. We're going to close the service uh, with that today, and you'll understand why as we get into John 15. As always, we're, we're always trying to keep, keep what we're talking about every single week to the forefront, a series called Real Peace, peace that's needed when Jesus himself is leaving his disciples. The night before Jesus dies, he takes these few chapters and he begins to give this last words type discourse. The last words that I would say to people that I I love dearly, dearly, children who I'm leaving seemingly alone in the world. So let me refresh our memory. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. Judas has has been shown to be the one that's going to betray him and he has left. Peter has been told that he's going to deny and sorrow has filled their heart and so Jesus is trying to insert peace. Not the world's peace, but a peace that only he can give that can shine in the darkest night. A light that fills the heart of God's children. A light that comforts and brings joy despite circumstances. And Jesus is doing that how? Well, he's doing it with his word and his promises because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And there's something about opening God's word and, and our ears understanding what he's saying to us and then, and then swallowing this and chewing on it and, and getting the nourishment from the, the words of God that bring life to dead souls. And so Jesus is using his words to comfort his 11 disciples, and in, by extension, all of his disciples here on the other side of the planet thousands of years later. We just heard about this idea of abiding over and over and over, abiding in the vine, Jesus being the true vine and his father being the vine dresser, and Jesus has been re-emphasizing how important it is to remain, to stay connected to him. A question maybe we should ask constantly as we're reading this is why. 
Jesus, why? Why are you saying these things? Actually, that's a good question to ask anytime you're reading scripture is why? What's God's intent with this? This is not one thing after another. Jesus is going to random thought after random thought. This is all connected, motivated by the fact that he knows that he's leaving them physically, that they don't understand things now, that sorrow has filled their heart, and he wants them to endure the hardship that's coming. So he's giving them the words that will, that will motivate them to stay true to him. So you want to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And to, to follow the commands of Jesus means you love God. And to love Jesus means you follow his commands. And, and then this reiteration of I'm the vine. Without me, you can do nothing. Remain in me. Remain in my love. Remain in me. Remain in me. Let's all be honest as we think about living on planet earth, life, that makes sense. Because being a Christian, it seems like every single day there's something bombarding my mind and heart that seems to somehow, at the core of it, attack this exhortation to remain in Jesus. Right? We feel this. This is the honesty of the whole of the human who knows God, who's still living in the flesh, struggling with the world, pulling at your heart saying, no, this is the way to life. Come over here and enjoy this temporary pleasure with all of us. And Jesus is like, no, don't let any circumstance or hardship keep you from abiding in me. You remain in me. This is where we're at. I want to show you the last verse of our section today. You'll see it on the screen. And this last verse shows us Jesus' great desire for his disciples. What he wants to see from us, almost like the, the great definition of what this fruit is that he's been talking about that he wants to see abide and come out of his disciples, the fruit that he wants to see bore. John 15, verse 17, look what Jesus says. These things I command you so that, right? I have a purpose in this. There's something I'm wanting to accomplish in you. All these things that I've said so far has has a purpose in it. I, I'm trying to see something well up in your heart and I want to I see it in you. What does he say? These things I command you so that you will love one another. If you take the, the bird's eye view and you look down on this passage, you will see this almost like this great discourse for the first two greatest commandments. Love your God, the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He talked about that through chapter 14. And then he, he's, he's right here in the middle of 15, bringing it to this other purpose he wants to see happen. I want you to love one another. So he says, these things I command you. What things? What things is he commanding? All the way back from chapter 13 when he's washing their feet. Do as I do. Lay down your life for one another. Serve one another. Love me abide in me. All of these exhortations so far are culminating, right? And he's, he's giving us a little hint of what he's wanting to see accomplished in our hearts. These things I've spoken to you that, that you, I've commanded you that you would love one another. Here's what I want us to show us today. It's not the only ways, but in this particular passage, five different ways that Jesus is trying to motivate us to love one another to show us the importance of loving one another and motivating us. 
so that you will love one another. So he has said some things in the immediate context we're going to see, looking in, zeroing in to chapter, verses 12 through 7, that should motivate us to make loving one another like a pinnacle goal of our life, alongside loving God, for that's the first and greatest and second greatest commandment. Now let's talk about motivation, church. If I were to ask you what motivates you, that has a lot of, uh, a, lot of uh, a plethora of subjective uh, answers you could give. I'm motivated by coffee in the morning, right? If I know there's going to be coffee, oh, then I'm motivated to go. Or it's hard to leave the house if I don't have the coffee, right? Gotta get the coffee, Motivated by the weekend, right? Even the, even the songs of the world show, show this idea that they understand Sabbath rest, resting from work. Everybody is working for the weekend. You imagine working if there's no weekend? Man, you know, that's the human heart displaying that it understands that God has put into the heart of man a Sabbath rest that still remains for his people. Right? We understand, like, okay, there's a, there's a hardship. and, what, and so, so it's motivating to think there's something ahead. What about this? Let's have some fun with it. What if you're not motivated to exercise? Right? Exercise is a hard one, right? Looking for motivation, right? Searching the internet, scouring YouTube. Oh, I dropped my Bible. Scouring YouTube, looking for any bit of motivation you can about how can I just pump myself up to exercise? To, to run. Maybe it's just run. You know what? I got the greatest motivation for you. Imagine this. What if I told you, you know what? Every day at 3 p.m., I have a pack of rabid German shepherds that I'm going to release on you. It doesn't matter where you are. At 3 p.m., let me ask you this. At 3 p.m., are you going to experience a greater motivation to run than you would at 1 p.m.? Let me ask you this. You would be prepping. You would see 3, 3 p.m.'s coming. Like, nothing else matters. Like, I, can't, I don't even care about this work. I just need to, like, get limber and stretch. Okay, where am I at? This is really awkward. Like, I'm stuck in this office. Okay, where are these dogs at? Next to you know, they're coming through the vents, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I've got to run. Motivation. Motivation. What motivates us? What, what, what is going to motivate? Let me bring it home. What's going to motivate us to love one another? If that's so important, and Jesus has said, I have commanded these things to you so that you would love one another. Let's look at it and see the motivations that Jesus is giving us that don't just come at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, but motivations that are over our life that he's speaking to his disciples and to us so that we would love one another. There's an implication in that. There's an implication that left to our own devices and the natural recourses, we don't just fall into loving one another. First thing is this. Jesus is motivating us by giving us his authoritative command. Jesus is motivating us by giving us his, his authoritative command. He says here in verse 12, this is my commandment. Here it is. You want to know what it is? My commandment, my authoritative commandment that you love one another. Focus on the word command. In the realm of the Bible, in the realm of being a Jew, in the realm of understanding scripture, 
when you hear who gives commands? Who is the person in scripture that I see is giving commandments? Who is that? Who gives commands? Let me hear it. God does. As, as God met Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the commands that he would want his people to follow, meaning this. It's authoritative. It has authority over our life. So is it motivating for you to hear Jesus saying to you, I'm commanding you as your authority, as God, who have already shown you so far in this passage that I am God, and that I have the authority to give you my command, which is the Father's. I command you love one another. Is that motivating? Should be. But, but it doesn't just stop there. By the way, God gave commands in the past. Should have been motivating, but when you look at the history of God's people, did they, were they fully motivated by just a command and a law that they must follow? Actually, Scripture says that that because of the command, the law, the flesh actually got worse. Because when you hear do something, everything inside of you wants to not do something. And the commands of the Old Testament were your schoolmaster to teach you, you're more wicked than you could ever imagine. You need a rescuer, and that rescuer is Jesus. So now Jesus is giving a command. Okay, Jesus, I already know. We've already found out how hard it is to follow commands. So yes, I'm motivated. I hear your command, but my heart's welled up with like, I don't know if I can do that, keep up with it. Well, command a burden over me, okay? Well, the motivations don't just stop at the command. Okay, so here's the next motivation. Motivating us to love one another, not only by his authoritative command, but by his selfless example. By his, if I were to ask you, okay, love one another, that has some uh, subjectivity to it, does it? What does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to love? How do, how do we know what type of love he's talking about? Does that mean, you know, I'm gonna, you know, when I go to Taco Bell and I buy a taco, I'll buy a second one and I give you a taco, right? That's the extent of my love. It may involve that. I don't know, but I need to know what this love is. And Jesus doesn't leave us without knowing what this love is. He gives the command to love but he says how to do it as well. Look what he says. He gives a selfless example. And when I say give us, I don't mean like we have a, an example to look at. I mean, we are actually being given his love and experiencing it. Look what he says. As I have loved you. Then he says this. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. In only a few hours, Jesus is going to prove that love to, to them, to us. Okay, authoritative command. He wants us and is commanding us to love one another. But he shows the love that I want you to give is the one that you've experienced from me. You know how to love because if you know me and you've experienced my love, then you know exactly what I mean when I say love one another. I, I, maybe immediately they're not thinking about what we're thinking about. We're thinking about him dying on the cross. This hasn't happened yet. They will experience it, but I, I bet they're thinking about chapter 13 when he stooped down and he washed their dirty feet and he served them in this way. Right? 
A love that is shown, a love that is real, a love that is fake, a love that is not just words, but in deed and truth. Real love as Jesus loves, which is selfless. Considering others more important than me. Considering the people that I'm sitting next to, even though I may not have a a close, intimate relationship with where I know them, but they love Jesus and I love Jesus and he saved us both and he's brought us together. And because of that, I'm overflowing with a selfless love for the very people in this room and and any other Christians that I would meet meet any other part of the world because the spirit's both in us and this is what God wants. This is the fruit he wants as a love. This is the greatest fruit. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Selfless example of Jesus that he's given to us not only to be able to know how to love, but intimately given it to us. What's the third motivation? It doesn't just stop with a selfless example. It doesn't stop with a command. He keeps going. He's motivating us by giving us his genuine friendship. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. But then he says this in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, okay, I have to admit, when, when I first read this and studied it, I'm like, what type of friendship is that? Hey, you want to be my friend? You better do what I tell you to do. That wouldn't really work out in a friendship between us, would it? Let's look at it. Let's understand it. He says this, no longer do I call you servants. He says, you are my friends If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. We we need to unpack this. There there actually is a lot going on here. I want to make sure we understand just what Jesus is saying. First, First thing is this. You are my friends if, condition, you do what I command you. It's similar to when he says the one who loves me will keep my commandments. He who keeps my commandments is the one who loves me. He who is my friend has my genuine friendship are the people that love one another, that love me and love one another. There is no such thing as a friend of Jesus that does not love one another. Jesus is saying, it's just, he's saying it's a dictative thing. It's just not true. You, I've called you my friends. Jesus is your friend. How do you know that? If you do what he commands you. Now this, and then he says this, no longer do I call you servants. So let me say this. I'm going to tell you how we should look at this and then I'm going to explain it. You need to see yourself because this is what's actually true about you, about us as Christians. Not just cliche, but true. We are both slaves and friends of Jesus. Very important. Slaves and friends of Jesus. When it says there, no longer do I call you servants, that doesn't mean no longer are you servants. By the way, the word is slave, not servant. In the past few 
hundred years, our Bible translations have got closer to this word servant or bondservant because of the trigger in our society that comes from the word slave. God intends for us to think about this as slavery. Doulos means slave. Now, I'm asking us to put along our modern associations with slavery that just make us think about the the horrible things that have been done in the past and think about it the way that God's intending us to think about this. The Bible never condones slavery, but it also never condemns it. The Bible talks about slavery as an indicative part of life. You are a slave. There's nothing you can do about it. You are either a slave to God or you are a slave to sin. There is no in-between. You cannot be freed from sin without becoming a slave to God. A slave in this sense, that he has bought you with a price and you are his. You belong to him. You are his. He is your master and Lord. By the way, curios, the word Lord is slave language. It, it only is an association with a master-slave relationship. So when we say Jesus is Lord, you know what we're also saying? I believe that Jesus is Lord and I believe that I am his slave. He is my master. I am 100% dependent on him for everything. He tells me what to do. He feeds me. He takes care of me. We understand what it's like on planet earth for slavery always to lead to cruelty. God is saying when I am your master, it is the best life you could ever have. But you need to think of yourself as my slave and me as your Lord, because that's what it is. Romans 6 says you're doing one of two things. You are yielding your members to sin for it to become your master and be enslaved to it, or you're yielding your members, your body to God to become his slave. No longer, but so let's bring this back. No longer do I call you servants, slaves. Think of it this way. No longer do I just call you slaves. I have called you friends. How do we know this is true? The New Testament reinforces constantly that we are slaves and he is Lord. Actually, if you look down at verse 20 of chapter 15, look what Jesus is going to say just a little bit later. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I am your master. You are my slave. Now, so then let's go back and talk about friendship. What's so motivating then about Jesus giving us his genuine friendship? Well, it's only so good when you understand the position of being a slave that you're in. Now think about A slave. A slave is only there to be do what they're told to do. They have no rights, none at all. They don't get to eat on the inside with the family. They don't get to be on the inside. A slave doesn't get to know what his master is doing. You don't get to know my plans. You just do what I've told you to do. And a lot of times we think about God just like that. Jesus is trying to motivate you to say, it's not just like that. I'm wanting you to see my heart in this. Yes, you are my slaves that I take care of and I'm laying my life down for you because you're not just my slaves. You are my friends. You are my friends. Now, 
Why would this be so impactful here and motivating to them? It's not as motivating to us because when we think about friendship, we don't think about it like they would. We think about this. Oh yeah, friend, someone I like. I like to be around and hang out with, right? But then my family is still closer than friendship, right? Why wouldn't Jesus just say, you're my, my family if he wanted us to show? Thinking about it all wrong. In this day, in this day, there was a position that was higher than disciple. In this day, it was customary uh, within the Roman world and the emperor world that the king or the emperor had subjects called the friends of the king, friends of the emperor. So when you think about a master or a king, but then you think about his friends, you're thinking about the highest, most intimate, close section of people that the king would have had, and they would have had an intimate relationship with the king that no one else would have been able to have. They would have had free reign into his chambers to see him in the morning. They would have been the ones to hear the king's plan and the king would talk through them with it and they would, they would be like an entourage together that he showered special love and care to. Now we put ourselves back here thinking about Jesus calling us his friends. And this is further reinforced by how he qualifies it. He says, you're my friends. And the reason I can prove to you that you're friends of the king, the reason I can prove to you that I've let you in and given you this status that's higher than any, almost any other uh, status a king could give to someone. As he says this, you're my friends. No longer do I call you servants for the servant or the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I've made known to you. This is huge. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. Jesus told his disciples, to you it's been given the mysteries of the kingdom. But I speak in parables to keep these things hidden from people. And those who become his friends are the ones who get in on the insider information. Paul says to the Corinthians that it is impossible for people to understand the mysteries of God unless the spirit is inside of them and illuminating their mind to understand it. They'll just conclude that it's foolishness. And if they're Jewish, they'll, they'll stumble over it. It'll be offensive to them. The spirit of God has to be inside you for you to, one, hear and understand the mysteries that God has revealed to his people. Mysteries that were not known before this. Jesus shows up and he starts to speak to disciples and they, they, they go into the, the room after like a miracle and they say, Jesus, why'd you do this? And he explains it all to them. Why? Because he's their friend. They're friends of the king, friends of the emperor. They're not just slaves. They're slaves that he intimately loves so much so that he dies for them. Let me ask you this. What type of master do you want to have? Because guess what? You can't get away from slavery. Can't get away from it. You're either a slave to God or you're a slave to the world. And the world as your master will abuse you and do everything it can to kill you and bring you to destruction. The sin in your life that you keep yielding yourself to is never going to bring hope and joy and peace. It's going to be a flogging of an unmerciful, unloving master that will destroy you and pound your face into the ground. And then Jesus comes along and he lays down his own life to buy and purchase you from a wicked, evil master. So you could be his in his arms and he take care of you and love you 
bit more than that. Say, hey, come on into the house. There's a seat for you at the table. You, no, 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 you're my friend. No, 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 put that down. Come here, sit, sit here at the table. You're, you're one of us. I love you. Yes, yes, I'm your master. I have commands for you, but I want you to see that I love you. And I've given you an identity, an identity that's better than anything you could imagine. I want you to see yourself as a friend, a friend of me, a friend of your master. Let me ask you this. How motivating to love one another do things start to become as you start to understand this? It's one thing when you just have a command. It's another thing when it's who's saying it and then what have they done for you? I mean, think about in your own life. Let's think about now in friendship, how we think about it. Someone who you don't know that's commanding you to do something versus a friend that's coming to you asking you to do something. Who, who do you just like naturally like, yeah, let's do it. What do, you, what do you need? I'm there for you, right? Like, like do or die. I got this. You know, whatever trouble you get into, I'm going to be in there with you, right? We really get this as when we're teenagers, right? Because teenagers are looking for that. They're looking for that community, right? And the, the wickedness of the world shows up, just naturally goes to kids who have no direction into gang life, right? Because there's something about people who are willing to like make this commitment to you and lay their life down for you. And it just something inside of the soul of the person is like, this is right. This is what life is supposed to be about. It's, it's trying to find those who will love me and look out for me and have my back and I have their back. And then the church shows up and says, no, what you're looking for is in the church. That, that, that's what's in your soul, but it is speaking to something and Jesus is saying this community, this friendship, this family, this, this camaraderie, this gang, you're part of my gang. I got your back. I'm with you. How does that motivate you then to do what he's commanding you? But listen, the motivations don't just stop there. They keep going. What's the fourth motivation he gives? He's given his command. He's given us, we've experienced his selfless example of love. He's, under, he's explained what that love is. He's given us and promised us his genuine friendship Friendship of the king. Look what he gives us, the fourth one. He's given us his unconditional, eternal purpose. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Disciples always chose their masters. I'm choosing the master that I want to hitch my wagon to and follow. Jesus comes along and says, like, my discipleship, you following me, me being your master is totally different. You didn't choose me. I chose you. How does that motivate you knowing that God sought you out? He sought you. He found you. He chose you. It wasn't like he was sitting down waiting for you to like come into his office and then give him a sales pitch as to why he should let you in. You and I were running from God and enemies of God. And while we were enemies with God, Christ died for us, demonstrating his love for us and that there was nothing about us that motivated him to love us except his own unconditional desire to love those who hated him. I chose you, unconditional. I chose you and I've given you a purpose. So he says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, right? It's this idea of I've been given a task for service. I've chose you, unconditional love, and I've also given you an eternal purpose. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, remain eternal. 
you take this good news of the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you abide in and you take it to a lost world and people hear it and are saved, that is fruit that abides for eternity. It's a purpose that will last into the night and into your future and well before you're gone, your impact will still be making an impact and we are proof of it today as the apostles were the first fruits who took the obedient command of Jesus to go out into the world and share the gospel and because they started it and the church has continued it ever since, here we are reaping the benefits of the gospel, reaching our ears and our hearts and the spirit of God quickening us and bringing us alive and showering with us with the love that we do not deserve. And God says, I want you to continue and be a part of this eternal purpose. I've appointed you for this. This is what life is about. This is what it is. Go and bear fruit. And in the context of what, what, like, how do I do this? Like you need to focus on loving one another. Like I've loved you. You love me and you love one another. And the scripture tells us, Paul tells us that all the rest of the law hangs on these two things. This is why it's so important if you put your focus and your motivation on the two greatest commandments, everything underneath it falls. Hey, because you don't murder the one you love. You don't steal from the one you love. You don't envy and covet against the one you love. You don't take the spouse of the one you love. You don't lie to the one you love. It's a different motivation it's, it's different than when I have someone pointing their finger at me, telling me to do something versus someone who's like, I'm gonna show you what I want you to do for me and I'm gonna do it for you when you don't deserve it. And I hung for over six hours on a cross saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And I secured for you something that you could never secure in yourself while you were condemned already on your way to hell as children of wrath by nature. I chose you and freed you from that. And if I've really done that for you, that should motivate something in your heart to give it to others. Which is why it's so problematic when someone who says they love Jesus doesn't love like Jesus does. And you have to ask yourself, have they really experienced that love then? Final motivation is this. So if there's any remaining doubt in our hearts. It's like, this is just too much. I can't do this. All I can think about is my insecurities and my failures and my selfless heart that's just brewing every day. I hear it, Jesus. I hear what you're saying. I do believe you love me, but it feels so hard to do. Look what he says next. He gives us this final motivation by telling us and promising us and reiterating that he has given us his abiding power to do these things. That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you may love one another. Slaves bought with a price, bought out of the hands of an evil master into a master who lays his life down for them and who makes them friends also motivating them to tell them you've been given a purpose. But this purpose that may seem heavy, trepidation and fear comes in, I've also supplied the very power to do it. 
which is why he said, abide in me for without me, you can do nothing. You cannot go and follow my commands if you're not abiding in me. If the center of your life is not Jesus Christ and you're not connected to me, you won't be able to do the things that I'm asking you. But if you love me, you remain in me, you pray, whatever you pray in the father's name, he will give to you which means this, anytime you come against something in your heart that says, I can't do that, it makes me feel like I'm lost and you don't love me, no, I don't want you thinking that. What I want you thinking is, yes, in your own strength, you can't, but with me, all things are possible. So you stop and you say, God, I hear your command. God, you know, in my flesh, I can't do it myself. I must lay down my life like Jesus did for my brothers. My flesh is fighting against that God would you, would you supply me with the strength that I need to be able to follow your commands and love you and love one another? That's what it means to pray in his name. You know, sometimes we get confused with that, praying in the Father's name. Like we think if we say, we confuse us by thinking if we say in Jesus' name, then that solidifies a, a prayer that Jesus is going to answer. No, no, no. Whatever you ask in accordance with the Father's will. If you're asking for the same thing God wants, then he guarantees you you're gonna get it. Does God want you to love one another? Does he want you to? Is that ever not gonna be true? Do we in life experience how hard it is to love one another, especially when we start you know, arguing over politics and we start seeing how each other eats and how they smack their lips and then they do stuff that annoy us. And then you know, it just like, it gets so hard to just like bear and forbear and be patient. And then we just have like different opinions and whatever it is. And it's just so hard to love and we make each other enemies. And, we start, and then we hear the gospel and our hearts get like so convicted and we feel so evil because we see that resentment and that bitterness and that unchrist-like worldly way harbored in our heart. What do we do? We remember that God says, I have provided you the exact power that you need. You come to me in prayer and you ask for me to do that for you because I want it. And if you're asking for it, I'm guarantee you if you ask in my name, which means according to what God wants, according to his will, he will do it. Which means when sometimes when we do ask for things and we say in his name and he doesn't do it, it doesn't mean because he doesn't love you and he's like keeping it from you. It means it may not be in accordance with what he wants. But we know he wants us to love one another. There should be none of us that, can doubt, that should doubt and think that this command is burdensome and unattainable. That's what the law does to us. Jesus comes along and gives us power and the ability to be able to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever you ask in my name. So as I read verse 17, does the motivation mean a little bit more? These things I command you so that you will love one another. John wrote the book of John. The same John wrote first, second, third John. And John seemed to have an obsession with this teaching of Jesus. He seemed to really somehow clued in to this command of Jesus. He, he's the disciple that elevates this command in scripture, I think more than anyone else. It's there in all of them. But when John writes and speaks, you can tell something about this night and the love from Jesus motivated him to want to tell Christians to make sure this is part of your life. It may be because he was the one whom Jesus loved. Maybe, maybe Jesus did that purposely because he knew John was going to be appointed to write this and emphasize this. So he made sure to give John a very clear, tangible taste 
of his grace and his merciful love and friendship. And so John's like, man, this is the best thing in the world. That's why I want you to have it. Which when you come to first John, he says, so that your joy may be full. I write these things so, so your joy can be complete and you can join us in this wonderful relationship with Jesus. But let me read to you a section from first John. First John, does this sound like what we've just experienced? Chapter three, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised brothers that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But this we know, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. I'm gonna read one more verse and then we're gonna move on to communion. John 15, we stopped in verse 17. I wanna read you the very next verse. Verse 18. If the world hates you, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. You're not gonna find love in the world. It is so important that we love one another and we do this for one another, lay our life down for one another in the way that Jesus did because Jesus is gonna talk about the hatred that inevitably will come from the world because they hated him, they will hate us as well. And this is one of the practical reasons we need to love one another in the midst of this wicked and crooked generation that's passing away that desperately needs the fruit of this message. So we're gonna move into our time of communion. I'm gonna go ahead and ask that everyone start coming forward, those who will be at the table. The team's gonna come out onto the stage. And here's what I want us to do. A message like this and a passage like this is so paramount to the church. God says that if you bring an alt, a gift to the altar and there remember you have ought or offense against someone or they have it against you, lay your gift down at the altar, go make things right. As we do something in remembrance of the blood that Jesus spilt, as we remember the love that Jesus poured out for us and laying his life down for his friends, living selflessly for us, spilling his blood and his body being beaten and broken for us. It's a very serious time. This is the time in the same scripture where God, Jesus instituted this and say, this is another command, do this in remembrance of me. 
Because we need the constant reminder. We need that constant centering to attack our heart and to wake us up and admonish us and exhort us and rebuke us to a place where we're loving again and not holding on to, to bitterness and resentment for maybe someone in this room. God says, do not take of this in an unworthy manner. So I'm gonna ask everyone to bow their head, close their eyes, and it's gonna be time to do business with the Lord. I'm gonna give you a few minutes of reflection and here's what I want you to do and here's what I wanna exhort you to do. I want you to check your own heart to see if there's, there's, there's any lack of love for someone. A judgment, a critical spirit, someone maybe you've been gossiping about. Someone maybe when you think of them, it's, it's immediate repulsion. Search your heart and find that place that is unlike Jesus, that's of Cain and not like Jesus and ask God to forgive you. And while you're searching your heart, you're remembering what Jesus did for you. He gave his life on the cross and he died and he rose and he forgives you 70 times seven and he's patient with you and he's merciful with you. And he gives you a parable. He says, I freed you from a debt you could not pay. Don't go and choke others who owe you something far less than what you owe me. And then here's what I'm gonna challenge you to do. It may be something that you just need to make right with the Lord because the other person doesn't know it. But maybe there's a relationship here in this room where you both know it. You both know there's a lack of love for one another. Whoever the offender is, it doesn't matter. This will be the time as I'm gonna give all of us time to stand up and move so you're not gonna be like standing out amongst everyone to go to that person and just let them know you love them and just ask for forgiveness and humble yourself and do this because this is what God wants. And if we're gonna shine lights and be used by him and appointed by him, he puts our relationship with him on pause until we make things right with one another. That's how important it is for him. Put your gift down. Don't take of communion until you make things right. So make things right with the Lord and if necessary, make things right with someone in this room. I'm gonna be quiet, give you a few seconds and then I'll give further instruction. Father, without you, we can do nothing. God, these moments when our hearts may be convicted or anxious, would you remove the enemy's influence and you would bring us to a place of peace that only you can bring that comes through truth, that comes through resting in your promises, but then also obeying your commands. Give us the strength we need in this moment to, to please you and honor you in everything. God, thank you for your son's sacrifice on the cross who spilled his blood on our behalf and who gave up his body. But God, we know, we look at that example and we see how wonderful it is. We need your help to reflect this love back first to you 
because you are owe everything. We give you the affections of our heart. But then God, teach us and help us and break our hearts every single moment when we look in the eyes of our brothers and sisters and to be willing to lay our life down for one another. We do not know what's coming in the world. We do not know what we're going to face. We do know the world is not gonna be on our side. They hate us. They will do everything they can to destroy us or to motivate us to leave you. It's in these moments we need each other. Motivate us and move us and empower us to lay our lives down as you did. I pray this all in Jesus' name.